Welcome to Waterbrook Church located in Victoria, Minnesota. Waterbrook Church seeks to be a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic family that is captivated by Jesus, compelled to love others, and called to make disciples to the glory of God. This summer we're starting a series in Psalms called Longing for God. One of the realities in our Christian experience is that we can go through times where God seems to have turned his face away from us. God feels cold and distant. We can misinterpret this as God forsaking us or God forgetting about us. However, we need to be reminded that the Lord never stops shepherding his people, even if it feels as if he has left us. Are you in a cold place spiritually? Have you gone through a time when God has seemed to have hidden his face from you? Let's gather and celebrate the God who seeks us and let's find the words to cry out to the Lord when we long to see his smile again. Let's worship together. Well, we are officially out of the Gospel of Luke and I talked to some folks in the first service saying they have only been in Luke since they've been at Waterbrook (laughs) and that may be true for some of you. So there are other parts of the scripture to be studied and to be uh, learned. And uh, we have decided to do a series called Longing for God. And uh, we're going to go through uh, some psalms in the summertime. And one of the beautiful things about the psalms is they're written to resonate with the deepest emotions that are part of our lives. Uh, When we were praying early this morning, uh, some of the folks admitted that early in their Christian life they didn't enjoy the Psalms. Uh, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the ladies who was praying with us said, I didn't enjoy the Psalms until I was broken. And I thought that's a great statement. That the Psalms often resonate with us in our most difficult times and suddenly they become alive to us. And they're written for that reason. They're written to bring us to the Lord, to help us seek the Lord. And that's why we're starting in a psalm that you probably aren't familiar with. It's not one of the most famous psalms, Psalm 80. But we're starting there because there's a deep cry for God here. In fact, uh, we've called it um, longing for God's smile. And I hope uh, that some of you being here this morning, uh, if you have felt like God has turned his face away from you, if you feel like your experience of the Lord has been cold and distant for some time, this is a really helpful psalm. I hope it will minister to your hearts, but one of the things I want you to know right off the bat is these psalms were inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us from God in order to draw us to himself. That's the beauty of these things. You're supposed to read them. Sometimes there's deep emotion. Sometimes there's great anxiety. Kind of all of the things that we go through. But all of them are designed not to push us away, but to draw us in. Not to create um, a, you know, expanded difficulties, but actually to show us and to bring us into worship. Here's something we often don't think. Our definitions of worship are such that we often think that we worship God best when we're at the high points of our lives. But some of the most authentic worship we have is at the low points. Some of the clearest passages in the Psalms are, are when we're deeply struggling. And the great news is God himself gave us language to come to him when we're broken. Come to him when we're anxious. Come to him when we're struggling. Also coming when we're celebrating the high points of life. That's the beauty of the Psalms. And so the real goal of the summer is 
to draw near to God together and uh, uh, facilitate. That's what we do in worship. On a Sunday morning, we are trying to load your life with resources to draw near to God all week long, Um, to wrestle with God, to pray to God, to seek God so that you aren't doing this alone. Let me uh, read to you uh, Ray Stedman's description of what the Psalms are designed to do. He says, the Psalms are designed to teach us to do one primary thing, to worship. Though they reflect every human emotion, they do so in a distinct and important way. They are emotions seen in relationship to God. I just want to pause there. It's very easy for us to allow our emotions to separate us from God. Or it's very easy for us in our emotions to just settle down in our emotions. And having emotions is not wrong, but our emotions need to be seen in light of who God is. Every psalm is written as in the very presence of God. This book, therefore, tells us how to be honest before God. If you have a problem in your life, tell God about it. Don't hide it. Don't cover it up. Especially do not become pious and sanctimonious and try to act as if there's no trouble. If you feel angry with God, it's best to say so. If you're upset about something, tell him your sense of disturbance, but remind him also that you know how foolish it is to be upset with him. If you're resentful, bring that out. If you're happy and joyful, express that. This is what worship is. A heart pouring out honest reactions to God who can both correct and restore. If we learn to be honest before God, even about troubles and problems, wrong moods and resentful attitudes, we shall quickly find His grace answering our need. Isn't that a good word? That's helpful to us. God will answer our need in those moments. So in Psalm 80, um, we've called it seeking the smile of God, longing for the smile of God. Alec Moitier in his commentary calls Psalm 80 the lost smile. Maybe some of you can relate to that. You've lost your smile in the Lord. And this is written for that. One of the things that's interesting about Psalm 80 is it's the other 23rd Psalm. Most of you know the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. This Psalm starts with God as his shepherd as well, but shepherding us from a very different angle, very different experience. But the goal in all of the Psalms is to walk you through this, not just to walk you through the event, but walk you to God, to usher you into his presence, to bring you into his comfort. So listen to John Piper as he describes what drawing near to God looks like. He says, drawing near is not a physical act. It's not building a Tower of Babel by your achievements to get you to heaven. It's not necessarily going to a church building or walking to an altar at the front. It's an invisible act of the heart. You can do it while standing absolutely still. You can do it while lying in a hospital bed. You can do it while sitting in a pew listening to a sermon. I'm underlying that. (laughs) So you're not just going to worship, friends. Today, draw near to God. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Drawing near is not moving from one place to another. It is a directing of the heart into the presence of God who is as distant as the holy of holies in heaven and yet as near as the door of faith. He's commanding us to come, 
to approach him, to draw near to him. And so the Bible regularly tells us, points us to God. And in this passage, you probably saw when Gabe got to the end of the text of Scripture, you see Jesus shining in the text. And, and in the message of the gospel, in the text, this shepherd of ours is inviting us to the Lord to draw near. So the New Testament regularly says things like this in Hebrews 4.16, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of what? Need. Not when you got it together, but when you don't. Not when you've filled yourself up, when the fuel tank spiritually is full, but when you need fuel for living for God. Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who draws near to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. That's what the Psalms tell you, that God loves to answer those who seek Him. God loves to meet those and invites us to draw near to Him. So today, let's look at Psalm 80, the other 23rd Psalm, and ask the question, what does it mean to seek the smile of God in our lives? Here's the first thing I want you to see when we pray, smile on me, as we have just sung. Smile on us, God. It's a plea for restoration of God's favor and his saving presence. That's the starting point. When you're asking God to smile on you, it's not so that you can get other things. It's so you can have God. Amen. The purpose of seeking the smile of God is to seek the God of the smile. Amen. To draw near and to seek his face. This is a longing for the restoration of a relationship. So listen to verse 1 to 3. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. This psalm sees God as a shepherd who has brought God's people into a season of sorrow and God alone as the one who can shepherd them out of it. Got that? So one of the ways to be blessed by this psalm is to recognize that even when it seems God is not smiling, God is still present. And God will bring us through seasons where we cannot see his smile in order to shepherd us to the place where we can. Got that? And so that's how the psalm reads here. So there's a couple of things that we need to see. Alec Moitier says, circumstances do not alter the truth. God is still the shepherd of his people when alienated from them. And that's, that's a really interesting truth. But often we think, oh God, you've forgotten me. No, it's not. And God will often take us through times when we don't see his face. He's shepherding us. Look at the end of chapter 79. This section in Psalm 78 to Psalm 80, the, the psalmist are writing about the people of God as they've come under judgment because of their idolatry. And it, it deals with um, the people of Judah in 78. It seems like in this chapter it's leaning more towards the people of Israel. In fact, in the Septuagint, there's a little subheading to the title that Gabe read there, which says, To the Assyrian, which indicates that this psalm was used when Israel... It was sent into captivity in 722 B.C., and they were not 
restored. They never were restored again. So the whole psalm, that whole centuries, is looking ahead to the coming of God's deliverance when God would smile in the coming of Jesus. But amazingly, God leaves them longing for seven centuries, waiting for the coming. That's like the Old Testament. When the Old Testament ends in Malachi and we get to the Gospels, there's just this gap of God's silence. And that's because not, it's not because God has forgotten them, but it's God is working out his purpose in the fullness of time. And he's creating longings by which he shepherds. So if you look at the end of 79, the previous psalm, the psalmist crying out to God says, but we're, we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. For generation to generation, we will recount your praise. So even though they're going through difficult times, there's an anticipation of deliverance from God where he will smile on them. He'll make their face shine upon them and they are made whole notice in verse one give ear O shepherd of israel you who lead who joseph like a flock you're a jewish person he uses the language right after that of the tribes of israel he talks about ephraim ephraim and benjamin and manasseh and those are uh, all the children of rachel that were born to jacob and by the psalmist saying this, he's saying these are your special people. Like these children were to Jacob. These are your precious people. You shepherd us. And the people were to look back to the Old Testament and remember the story of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember the story of Joseph being brought. And remember the story of Joseph? There were times where it looked like Joseph was abandoned. But when you get to Genesis chapter 50, what does Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Isn't that good news? And so he's looking to the shepherd who guided the people of Israel and saw them as precious. And sometimes we don't feel like God sees us as precious when he hides his face from us, but he only does it so he might restore us and bring us to himself. I want you to listen to Genesis 48 because when, when he talks about Joseph being shepherded, the people of Israel, if they knew the book of Genesis, would remember that time when Joseph brings his sons to Jacob and asks Jacob to bless them. And Jacob does kind of what God did with his heritage where he reverses the blessing. You know, Jacob and Esau, God blesses the younger uh, instead of the older. That's what happens in the scene. But listen to Genesis 48, 13 to 16. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, saying this, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who is my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And so the first thing that we are meant to see is there are many times in the journey where it doesn't look like God shepherding. But he's the shepherd who shepherds in ways that we wouldn't expect 
and accomplishes his purpose in an unfailing way. Aren't you glad for that? That's how the psalm begins. There are times when we cannot see the smiling face of God, but because of that, we must interpret the non-existent smile of God still in light of the shepherding faithfulness of God and his love towards his people. Our experience is not always mountaintop. Sometimes it's valley. But God never steps away from his, his covenant people that are precious to us. It's precious to him, especially in Jesus Christ. Notice also, he says, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth. And for the Jewish people, they would immediately picture the tabernacle. They'd immediately picture the Holy of Holies. They would immediately picture the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim were formed and their wings were spread towards the middle. And it was over the Ark of the Covenant that God manifested his holy presence. And it was from that place called the mercy seat that they hoped that God would fight on their behalf, that God would bless them. And of course, they were presumptuous about that. For example, in uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4, Eli has two sons who are priests, Hophni and Phinehas. They go into battle with the Philistines and they get defeated. So they discover, they decide instead that they will go get the Ark of the Covenant because that's where the Lord of hosts is. They'll bring him in and he'll fight on their behalf and they'll win the battle. What they end up doing is losing the Ark of the Covenant. Because they were presumptuous in, in an idolatrous way upon God. They were using God for their battles, not surrendering to him. But the text of Scripture here is meant to remind us that the power of God in, 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 above the cherubim is the God, Lord God who rules and fights on our behalf. There are many times in the lives of God's people where it seems that God, the God who sits upon the cherubim and has the power to save doesn't. He has refused to make his face shine upon us. He has all the authority and power, but he does not shine on his people. That'll happen for David. Psalm chapter 51, he'll cry out to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Daniel will pray in Daniel uh, when he is in captivity for 70 years, he will pray to God and he'll use language that's here that God would make his face shine towards them because he's lingering in captivity. And it seems like God has forgotten about the people of Israel. But he remembers the word of Lord. He remembers the promise of God. And he pleads with God. In Daniel 9, 16, he says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant, your, and your pleas, in his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear to hear. I don't know how many times in the Old Testament you find the people of God in positions where it seems like God's forgotten them. But the only hope for their prayer is that God never forgets his people. Their only hope for their prayer is that God is still shepherding in the silence. Or the silence is actually there to shepherd them back to God and show them their need. Mark uh, Vrogrop in his book on Lamentations says this, 
pain has a way of awakening us to our need for God's help. It shines a spotlight on our powerlessness to control everything. We are never more aware of our frailty than when hardship comes. This is one of the blessings of suffering if we allow lament to lead us. That's an interesting line. Do you allow lament to lead your life in the scriptures? That's what Psalm 80 does. The various trials of life can become a platform to reaffirm our dependence upon the Lord. The requests of lament can become the place where we celebrate our need for God's help. Here's God, holy and exalted and risen up, and we feel like we can live our own way, do our own thing. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. And sometimes he takes us in a moment where we can't see his face. We can't feel what's going on there. But he does it so that we might cry out to him and come to him and find him to be the friend of sinners. The one who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can I ask you the question, is God shepherding you right now through a time of lament? Psalm 80 is for you. Psalm 80 is for me. When his face does not seem in front of us, when his, when, his, when his mercy is not evident to us. But here's the good news. In the psalmist day, they were looking to the Ark of the Covenant and seeing this and saying, God, if, the, if your presence is over that Ark, that God, that mighty God who is present there, would you be present with us? Well, here's the good news of the Gospel. We have one who is not over the, the handcrafted, cherubim on the ark of the covenant we have one who is in the very presence of the almighty who has the angels and the cherubim around him crying out holy holy and he ever lives to intercede for us we have a better help and a better hope listen to hebrews eight twenty four. christ has not entered into holy places made with hands which are copies of the true things But he's entered into heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Alec Moitier says to have God shine his face upon his people is to experience a restoration of God's favor. God, I need you. I need a restored relationship with you. That's the first place. That's why this is worship. Not fix my circumstances, not solve my problems. I was made for you. I'm restless until I find my rest in you. Let me just pause and ask you the question. If God has seemed silent and if his face seems to be turned from you, is it possible that you have been looking for substitutes for God, from God instead of God? Thank God for his silence. Thank God that He turns His face away so that we might know that we were made for Him and that we long for Him. And it's not a bad thing to groan if your groaning is after a God who loves you. And and it also teaches us that we're not in control. We must give up control. We're trying to control our own lives, our own happiness, our own satisfaction. My dear friends, you don't, you cannot, you are not in control. You do not want to be in control. But I got better news. God is in control. So let me ask you the question when you say, God, smile on me today. Are you asking for the restoration of a relationship with Him? 
That's where it's got to start. Secondly, to pray, smile on us, shine on us, as this text says. It's a plea for the end of sorrow and shame that has come from a broken relationship with God. Look at verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Each time the chorus comes up at the end of that section, the name of the, the, the psalmist's words for God gets stronger. He begins in the, the first chorus by saying, O God, help us. Now he calls him the God of hosts. At the end, he'll call him the Lord God of hosts. In other words, his desire for a stronger deliverance from God increases as the lament, the psalm, goes on. But what you and I need to see in this first section of Scripture as he looks at the sorrow of oppression, whatever the circumstances are that this psalmist is writing for and it's being used for, as he's looking at it, he does not blame his enemies first. And we need to see this. He sees God's hand in his sorrows. He sees God in the middle of it all. Listen to what he says. O Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. That's one of the reasons why I like Lamentations chapter 3. You know how we always go back, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. You don't get to enjoy that part of Lamentations 3 until you read the first 18 verses. Because in the first 18 verses of Lamentations, uh, Jeremiah says, God, you did this to me. You put me in the pit. You made my enemies do this. He, He actually... The description is detailed. At one point in time, it seems to describe like, you threw me in the pit and then they gave me lousy food to eat and I, I ate the, fo- the food and it broke my tooth. That's what it's like. He just goes, it went from bad to worse, but he brings it to God. God is never not sovereign and God is never not shepherding him. See, Hassel Bullock says this, our shepherd sometimes feeds us with the bread of tears, but never as our adversary. He's always our shepherd. He's bringing us to an awareness that the sorrow we have is because of our brokenness with him. So David, when David has deep conviction from God, he describes the process of repentance for him and he really looks to the Lord listen to one of the clearest descriptions of this in Psalm 32 1 to 5 David writes blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit but listen to this for when I kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long when I kept it inside I was miserable For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My dear friends, thank God for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Even if it is heavy upon us. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So, that's like now. When you're out there all day long. Guy like me without a ball cap. 
right? But then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When he writes that, he says, isn't it great to be forgiven? There's a process, he says, to coming to forgiveness. There's a process. So we need to see that one of the the ways the Lord mercifully shepherds us is to bring us to the feel, the sorrow over our sins. We must thank God that he shows us that there is a deep crack that needs to be addressed in our souls that only Christ can fix. Uh, Any of you see that a couple days ago the... The, ro- the roller coaster park, uh, amusement park down in uh, South Carolina, North Carolina border, I forget which side it's on, that had the roller coaster. It's got, it's called Carowinds, and it's got, I, I'm a roller coaster, I love roller coasters. It's got one of the fastest, largest roller coasters in America, and somebody was getting on to the roller coaster this week and looked up and saw that one of the main beams supporting the track had a crack all the way through it. They videoed it, went on social media, they shut the park down immediately. And it was a very good thing they did that. It's a very good thing that somebody was standing in line looking up going, I don't think I should ride this thing. <laughs> right? God will bring us into a sense of the depth of our need of him, the darkness of our sin, not because he's not shepherding us, but because he wants to save us from death. Right? He wants to save us from our sin. He wants us to feel the sorrow over it so that we might draw near to him we should thank God for the times when we don't feel the smile on his face because often this is the kindness of God which leads us to repentance God will not leave us in our sin but he calls us to seek his face the other part of it is is a plea here to end public ridicule and scorn he's going they're pointing their fingers they're ridiculing us they're ridiculing you that's the the plead here You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among us. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Part of being saved is having God take us through this time of scorn and rescue us from it. Uh, My mentor, uh, when I was early in training for ministry, said to me this line that stuck with me all my life. He says, God's not afraid of bad press. Isn't that true? I mean, you see the history of Christianity. Gabe was talking about it in Ireland, and, and we've seen it in America. God's not afraid to let his leaders fall publicly. But that's because God's not worried about his glory in the sense of helplessness. God loves his church and shepherds us. And he brings us to the end of ourselves. And then the, the cry of our heart once we are worshipful that we're drawing near to God is not simply the contention over our names, but because of us, his name. And so it's sorrow and it's shame that we seek. But here's the good news again of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. What? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful. That's how he answers the prayer. He answers the prayer not by simply saying, it's okay. He sends his son into the world. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's Christ Jesus who died and rose again. Right? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? Isn't that good news? God doesn't just say it's okay. God makes it okay. He deals with the sorrow that we have over sin, and he removes completely the shame. And he says, go and sin no more. Be free. That's the great news of the gospel. That's the longing to bring us to that point that we would want his restoration. And finally, in this text, the last thing on smile on me or make your face shine is a plea for the strength to remain faithful and fruitful. And I want you to hear this because it's really key in this text of Scripture. The larger part of the psalm shifts from God being a shepherd to God being a vine dresser. And it portrays Israel like often it is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Israel is a vine that God plants. And he describes the planting of God in this text of Scripture. Look at verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It set out its branches to the Mediterranean Sea. It shoots as far as the Euphrates River. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move it in the field feed on it. What's he do here? He says Israel was a nation that was not a nation. It was in captivity in Egypt. God took them out of Egypt. God drove out the nations in, uh, in Canaan and planted them. God prospered them. What's the reason for Israel's health and strength? God. God gave them life. And then when Israel turned from God... God took away his protection. And the nations ravaged them and the vine no longer bore fruit. But God does this for a reason. And so they cry out in verse 14, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the Son of Man whom you've made for yourself. They burnt it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. It's an interesting A statement here, because God's face can turn away from you, right? And you wonder, where are you, God? In order to draw you to himself, God's face can turn at you and rebuke you. You ever had a parent give you the look? Right? Oh, it just takes one look. Well, this is the God who just has to look at the nations and they'll be done works on their behalf. This is who they're crying out for deliverance. But what they're meant to see is the only reason they exist is the grace of God. Only reason they carry on is by the power of God. Only God is the explanation for how they, are, how they originated, and it's only God who will be the means by which they are restored. And so listen to what they pray for in verse 17. But let your hand be the man of your right hand. Who is that? The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall what? Not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call on your name. There are two things that they're longing for here in this passage. One is fidelity to God or faithfulness to God. Then we shall not turn back from you. They're not saying, okay, God, Have mercy on us and we'll stop doing this in our own strength. They're saying, man, we are prone to wander. God, we feel it. Left to ourselves, 
we will always turn away. But it says, give us life and we will call on your name. How will they get life? How will they be faithful to God? It says, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Who is that? It's Jesus. This is the Son of Man. Jesus calls him this. This is the man at the right hand. Jesus died. At the end of Luke, what do we see? He died, rose again, and ascended to the right hand and has been given all authority. They're not looking to themselves. They're looking to the promised one, this Messiah who would come and deliver them. Otherwise, they would not be faithful. This is what we've done. I'm done controlling my own destiny. I'm done trying to secure my own righteousness. I'm done trying to do it in my own strength. Left to me, I'll make a big mess of it. Amen? Amen. But show me the face of Jesus. And it changes everything. We don't get God to shine His face on us by learning to be faithful to God. We learn to be faithful to God when God shines His face on us in Jesus Christ. You got that? This is not a fix it up and then God will smile. This is asking God to smile so that we can fix up our lives. Worship Him and serve Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 says, This is what we proclaim, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of... Jesus Christ. The only way God shines his face on us and answers this psalm is by showing us Jesus. The crucified, risen, and reigning Christ. You see, some of our most sorrowful times are the very place where God shows us the face of Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? So when you say, shine on me, or smile on me, And then you say at the end, Lord God of hosts. Lord God of hosts. Who is Lord? Who is the God? Who is the mighty one who fights on our behalf? There's only one answer. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Only Jesus can save. My dear friends, are you in that place where God seems far away? It's okay. It's in the Scriptures. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. It's okay to say, God, smile on me. It's okay to cry out to this. But I'll tell you this, don't look to yourself. Don't look to your religion. Don't look to your your own performance. Don't look anywhere else but to the face of Jesus. And if you look to the face of Jesus, you'll see the smile of God far and wide and forever in him. And he'll set you free. That's where we start. I'll tell you what we're all longing for. We're longing for God, and we're longing for God's smile, and that smile is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this psalm, we know that the blessing of Aaron, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and and give you peace. I just thank you, dear God, that all of that is in Jesus Christ. 
I do pray for anyone here today, dear God, who is feeling excruciatingly distant from you, like you've forgotten them, that you're not shepherding them, that you don't see them. I pray, dear God, through the word of God, that they might see today that your eye is on them. And I pray, dear God, that you would call them to cry out to you. Cry out to the God who has power. Cry out to the God who is the shepherd. Cry out to the one who said, I am the great shepherd of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. Thank you, Jesus. I just pray, Heavenly Father, that you would show your face today. Change us forever, we ask. Through Jesus alone. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.